Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 139 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we talk with Kristen Pullen, the Woody Ornamental Portfolio Manager at Star Roses and Plants, all about growing bountiful berries in small spaces. The plant profile is on Phlox stolonifera, and we share what's going on in the garden, as well as some upcoming local gardening events in the What's New segment. We close out with Christy Wilhelmy, founder of Garden Nerd, who shares the last word on composting. This episode of Garden DC, we're joined by Kristen Pullen. She is the Woody Ornamental Portfolio Manager for Star Roses and Plants. Welcome, Kristen. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. So we're going to talk about everything berries and berry growing and how to have bountiful berries in our garden. Uh, but first, we want to talk a little bit about you, Kristen, and your background and how you came to your role at Star Roses. So let's dial it all the way back to when Kristen was a little baby. And were you born with a green thumb and chlorophyll in your veins? Um, you know, my mom would probably say I was, um, there's a funny story of, you know, me being a three-year-old and my mother loved cactus. So, you know, she had one of those big cactus plants in the house and I just decided one day it would be great to give it a bear hug. (laughs) And I think that was my first introduction to plants. Um, but it didn't turn me off of them. Um, you know, so since then, yeah, I was always helping my grandmother with uh, vegetable gardens and just really loved edible plants. Actually, edible plants were my first real love in the horticulture world. And then everything kind of went from there. Um, didn't go to school for it, though. So, mm-hmm. yeah, let's get into that for a second. But first, I have to establish you had no fear. <laughs> the horns weren't an issue apparently no uh not at that age (laughs) (laughs) so you went to school and what did you major in so I majored in biology and I was originally going to pursue a career in forensic science Hmm. so not that different I think kind of you know related to plant breeding a little bit I mean, like, you know, investigating to find new things or solve a puzzle or something like that. That's kind of always been an interest of mine. Um, But it wasn't until, you know, like entry level botany class that I started to decide I was going to change my mind. Hmm. And what turned that key in that entry level botany class? I think it was the first science lab where we actually got to leave the classroom, go outside, you know, spend time in the greenhouses. And I think it just reminded me of kind of the love I had been separated from when, you know, 
as I mentioned, I used to do vegetable gardening with my grandmother. Um, and I hadn't done that for quite a long time. So that science class in botany, where we actually got to run our own experiments with plants and grow the plants for the experiment and just really be involved in it. Um, you know, that made me start to realize that I don't think I want to be stuck in a lab with pipettes all day. Hmm. And where were you raised? Um, was it in the East coast or? Yeah. Um, I grew up in South Jersey. Um, so the garden state. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that might've been an influence too. And so after that botany class and that clicked for you, uh, what were your first, uh, internship positions out of college? So my first internship out of college was actually with Longwood Gardens in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's one of the largest um, public horticulture gardens in the world. Um, and it was a great hands-on experience. I actually lived there for a year while working in their research department. Wow, that was definitely a wonderful opportunity. Um, Longwood is, is the heart of many things. So does Longwood do a lot of, um, plant research and evaluation? They do. Um, so they have, of course they'll do plant research for their displays. So if you've ever been to Longwood and walked any of their displays, everything that they design and spec into their displays is first tested by their research department to make sure that it's going to do what they want it to do in the display. Interesting. Okay. Cause I always thought of the displays as test gardens or trials, but they're actually trialing before they're putting them out there. Yeah, they are. Um, and they also have a part of the garden that is a test garden. So they'll also do, um, in ground test testing. Um, and that was actually part of their, where a lot of their edible plants were tested too, was in the ground. And were were you working with edibles at that point or ornamentals or both? At that point, you know, it was 100% ornamental. Um, I didn't really work with the edible plants at that point. I mostly worked with um, camellia, clivia, uh, pitcher plants, um, and dabbled a little bit in some really cool projects with uh, plants that were being brought in from Australia. And... From those, did any of that make it to the consumer market that we might be growing in our gardens today? So Longwood released um, three Clivia cultivars while I was there. Um, You know, they don't grow in colder climates, but they are for sale. So there's Longwood Debutante, uh, Longwood and Longwood Fireworks and Longwood Chimes our three Clivia introductions that were bred uh, while I was there. I didn't do the crosses myself, uh, but I probably watered the plants at one point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I do recall seeing them uh, on exhibit at the Philadelphia Flower Show when they were bringing those out a few years ago. They were just gorgeous. And yet many people do raise them as a house plant or a greenhouse plant. Yeah, they're really easy, surprisingly, to grow as house plants uh, here. I have a couple myself. Mm-hmm. And I know she said Clivia and not Clivia, and so we know <laughs> it is named after Mr. Clive. Yes. <laughs> so from there, you are now working at Star Roses and Plants, also located in Pennsylvania, correct? Yes, they're right down the road from each other, about 15 minutes apart. 
Very convenient. And so your home garden is in Pennsylvania as well? Yes, I'm about, uh, you know, 20 minutes away from there. And can you describe a little bit about what you're growing at home and, and what you like to have in your garden? So I like to have a mix of in-ground plants that I don't need to worry about too much. <laughs> and then also, you know, some more unique um, plants that I will keep in containers to uh, just enjoy. So inside I have a lot of house plants. I have a lot of succulents um, that I keep inside. And then outside I have a lot of um, actually ericaceous plants. So blueberries are ericaceous. Um, but as I mentioned, I grew up in South Jersey near the Pine Barrens, which is a really um, acidic growing condition. So a lot of ericaceous plants grew, um, grow well there. So wild blueberries, rhododendron, um, skimmia. Um, so I have a lot of those things at my house just because there's a lot of nostalgia there. Mm -hmm. This sounds beautiful. And so in your full-time work in your job at Star Roses, your title also includes managing the Bushel and Berry brand. And let's tell the listeners a little bit about what Bushel and Berry means. Sure. So I'm sure consumers have probably seen black pot uh, blueberries at the store or at Home Depot, any kind of garden center they go to. Bushel and Berry was really designed to bring berry plants into a manageable size so that people that don't have garden space and maybe are living in an apartment or a condo could grow berry plants on their patio. So Bushel and Berry, all the varieties selected in it are self-pollinating. They're compact, so you can maintain them in containers. Um, and they are ornamental. So not only will they give you a good amount of delicious fruit, they'll also be very pretty for you throughout the season with different foliage colors and different flower colors. Hmm. Yeah, I think we could pause here and also define, you know, we were saying ornamentals versus edibles a lot earlier in our conversation. And of course, that doesn't have to be mutually exclusive, but a lot of gardeners do define themselves as one or the other and some yes. are both, of course. Um, so they'll say I grow ornamentals or I grow or edibles and or both. Um, so it's funny how we kind of divide the market that way as well, but it comes together a lot in those berry plants. Yes. And that's a hundred percent what we're going for. We want them to have multiple uses for the home gardener. So, you know, we want them to be both edible and ornamental. So tasty and pretty. <laughs> So let's dive into some of the berries that you all are offering in the program and how the homeowner might grow them. Um, but first, before I do that, I wanted to ask a, a little bit more about what you like to grow as far as berries in your home garden. Do you actually grow the same ones that you're trialing at work? Um, do you bring your work home is what I'm asking. <laughs> um, you know, I, I bring a lot of containers home. Mm. Um, so I do have bushel and berry blueberries at home and also a raspberry at home. So I have blueberry perpetua at home. Um, it's a double cropping blueberry, so it gives you extra fruit set. And then I also have, um, raspberry at home because it's compact and thornless. So it's much easier to grow than I actually have wild ones. I live along a wood line. 
Um, so it's actually much easier to grow raspberry shortcake because it's compact and thornless and I don't have to deal with the wild ones that are on my property trying to get fruit off of them. Mm -hmm. And that does bring up the point, maybe we'll jump ahead a little bit and say, if you planted those berries near those wild berries and you said that what you're developing are self-pollinating, do they ever cross-pollinate? Do they ever uh, make a, a baby out of those? You know, they probably do. Um, you, know, you can't. We can't really do anything about uh, wind pollination or animal pollination. But when we refer to self-pollination, it's really mostly in terms of a benefit to the consumer. So, you know, if you just had a single solitary pot on your patio and no other raspberry plants around, you would still get fruit. And that's not something that's necessarily uh, guaranteed with older market varieties. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so important, especially when you're a really small space gardener or have tight spaces. And so let's start with the blueberry category, because that's one where you almost always had to have two or three to get right. any berry production. Um, so you have several blueberries in your program. Um, and let's talk about and describe a few of them and their differences. Sure. So I'll start with Perpetua, since I mentioned I have that one at home. Uh, all of the blueberries, first of all, again, they're compact habits. So they're going to be really bushy and densely branched. So they'll look nice in a container. Perpetua is going to give you two crops of fruit. So typical fruiting time for blueberries is probably, you know, anywhere from June through August. So Perpetua, you'll get a first crop on it in like early to mid-June. And then you'll get a second crop um, much later in the season, so pushing on August, um, whereas other varieties are usually only early, mid, or late uh, fruiting. Hmm. And then, so that was Perpetua. How about um, the Peach Sorbet and Pink Icing? I just love these names. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, those are great ones too. So Pink Icing and Peach Sorbet were named because they have colorful spring foliage, so peach sorbet comes out with that kind of peachy red new growth in the spring, um, followed by a really nice heavy crop of large sweet berries. And then pink icing, the new foliage emerges in spring, really bright pink, um, almost neon pink, depending on how cool your temperatures are. Um, and again, has a really nice follow-up of uh, fresh fruit for you. So again, we're trying to you know, differentiate ourselves from what you'd see just in black pot where you're probably going to get a really large plant uh, with probably a leggy habit um, and not too many additional ornamental features. So all blueberries are deciduous dropping their leaves in the fall, but before they drop, they get that beautiful red blush. Is that uh, the same across all the blueberries in your collection? They all get fall foliage to some degree. Um, so I would say it ranges in color. So you're going to see a range between oranges all the way to deep reds and dark maroons. Uh, jelly bean and our sapphire and midnight cascade varieties, which are actually hanging basket varieties, probably have the deepest red foliage that you'll see in the fall. Mm. Yeah, I just love the way blueberry shrubs look in the fall. I always say plant them even if you're not going to get any fruit just for that color it's just beautiful brilliant color and then of course you're, you're talked about the spring flush of foliage how it comes in and, and 
it comes in different colors depending on the variety but the fruits themselves are variable as far as color so you have some that are almost dark navy black fruiting and then some that are kind of that pale dusty gray on the blue Mm -hmm. Um, but i'm not seeing i had heard a few years ago about some pink blueberries do you have any of the pink ones in your collection we don't have any that are fully pink Um, we are testing some for the future Um, there seems to be a lot of those are more commercial so they'll be on the big habit plants and haven't seen a lot of breeding work to bring that habit down into a compact size that fits our brand. Uh, but maybe more to come in the future. I would say if you are looking for a pink berried variety, though, I would try our berry bucks variety. It does age and ripen to that fully really dark um, blue that you were talking about. But the berries start out this nice like rosy red color. So you will get this bicolor effect as the berry bunches age. So you'll get some blue and some red mixed in there. Hmm. And that's Bucks, B-U-X, not like Bucks as in the buck stops here. Uh, Correct. It's (laughs) B-U-X. And it's actually a play on um, the genus for boxwood Mm -hmm. is Buxus. And berry Bucks is called that because it almost looks like a boxwood. The foliage is very glossy green it's really densely branched and it would actually do really well if you wanted to grow edible hedges in the ground. So anywhere you would use boxwood, you could plant this and have an edible hedge. It wouldn't stay evergreen, but like you said, you'd get spring flowers, you'd get um, summer fruit, and then you'd also get that fall foliage color. Interesting. Yeah, it is a beautiful little plant. And so I have to ask about taste. Um, and which one you prefer think is the sweetest or the one that's the best seller as far as taste? So that's interesting. We've, we always market them with their taste. So of course we do taste testing before we market these. Um, and most consumers actually come to us asking for the ornamental traits and amount of berries as opposed to the sweetness. Um, But I would say for me, the one that I like the best would probably be jelly bean. Um, It tastes almost like sweet blueberry jelly. It's just a really nice snacking berry. um, And I really enjoy the habit on that plant. It is going to be better suited for people in more northern climates. um, Because one thing we haven't touched on yet is it requires about a thousand chill hours. So it will do better in um, more northern climates. Mm, that's a very good point. Yeah, and I was going to ask for for blueberry conditions. Um, they're acid-loving plants. They're in the Ericaceae family, as you noted. And they usually like great drainage, which in our mid-Atlantic climate usually means adding some sand or grit or something to the soil, whether it's in a container or in the ground. What are your recommendations for growing conditions? So definitely well-drained soil. Um, For blueberries, you know, you could make make sure the mix has some kind of um, large particulate in it, and that could be pine bark. Um, It could also be peat moss uh, to help with that. It could also have perlite to help with drainage. Um, And then I would also recommend, you know, buying a soil acidifier, especially if you're going to be growing in containers. Um, any soil acidifier that you can find at your local garden center to have that on hand 
they usually need probably at least one acid treatment a season in the container. Um, in the ground, it can be variable depending on you know where you decide to plant them. Hmm. Good advice. And you said they're bred to be compact, but do they stay <laughs> that way? And how much pruning do they require? They stay that way. So they're not going to get big and large and leggy. Um, a lot of the brand ranges anywhere from two to four feet in height and pretty mounded habits. Some have slightly more of that upright uh, vase shape, like Perpetua would have that vase shape. Um, and then others will be smaller. So Sapphire and Midnight Cascade will actually be trailing blueberry. So they'll still be really low to the ground. Uh, they're great over retaining walls and those kind of garden features, but they're also great in hanging baskets. Um, you don't really need to prune them besides, you know, if you notice in the winter, um, keeping an eye on the amount of canes, if it gets too dense in the center, you might just want to trim out one or two of the oldest canes to the ground to keep them having nice air circulation. Mm -hmm. Or if in the spring you see some canes that are completely dead, so there's no new leaves sprouting off of them, we recommend just trimming out that dead wood and cut the cane all the way back to the ground. Okay, that sounds easy enough. And so I have to ask about the four letter words and that's deer and bird. Especially when, we're talk <laughs> especially when we're talking about blueberries, because yeah. that's the biggest lament I hear from listeners and readers of Washington Gardener magazine is, um, I grow blueberries, they've almost come ripe, and then the next day I go out and they're just stripped. There's none left. Mm -hmm. So which critter should we tackle first? <laughs> uh, maybe let's do the birds. The birds. Okay. So there's a handful of options. I would say the easiest would probably be bird netting. Um, so you want to get bird netting that is a small enough size that you can place it over the plants and still have airflow. Um, and they even sell them already made as like pop-up cages that you can just fit right over your container. I've seen some really nice, convenient products come out in that line um, mm -hmm. in more recent years, as opposed to having to tie it up yourself. That gets a little uh, labor intensive. The other thing that seems to work is, um, you know, there's like not wind chimes, but the, um, the pinwheel type material that ha is flashy and it spins in the wind. Um, uh, like mylar. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Having those works decently well. You just have to make sure that, you know, you move them from time to time because the birds are smart and they'll realize it actually isn't a threat. Uh, but if you change slightly where you're hanging it or staking it in the ground, um, you know, every couple months, it helps to keep them away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with the, the moving it around and the movement because that's mm -hmm. the whole um, theory behind scarecrows is just that, you know, kind of crazy w waving movement um, is uh, interpreted as bird to birds as a threat. But I was also mm -hmm. going to say on the netting, um, it can be problematic because little birds can get caught in loose netting. So mm -hmm. I like your uh, suggestion of those taut kind of cages that you pop yeah. over. And I was going to ask about timing. Do you recommend putting netting up um, 
just the week that it's ripe or a couple weeks in advance or the entire time the plant is there? I would recommend putting it up uh, once you see berries start to form. So it'll be, you know, a little bit after flowering, you'll start to see the fruit swell and it'll be bright green. I would recommend putting it on around that time. Okay. And then that moves us to deer. (laughs) So deer is a little trickier. Um, I have noticed though, with the patio program that they're not very brave, at least where I am to come all the way up onto my porch. (laughs) Um, and we're in Southeastern Pennsylvania, we have a pretty heavy deer population. Um, so I think that cut down, cuts down on it a little bit. Uh, but the cages can work for deer too, as long as you secure them, uh, firmly around the pot. So maybe you're not staking it directly into the pot, but maybe you're fastening it to your porch in some way. They won't be able to get through that bird netting either, especially the taut ones uh, that they can't really get a grip on. Good advice because, yeah, deer will pick up things and yes. or, paw, or paw or try to break things. So good to, you know, either pin it down maybe with landscape staples or maybe... Um, what are those things called? Zip ties, you know, zip yeah, tie it to yeah. a pole or something that attaches that they can't easily just, you know, kick it over or knock through it. So mm-hmm. those are some good things because, you know, we don't want to spray too much, even though a lot of the yeah. deer sprays are organic. It's not something you want to taste on your berries. Um, right. So, yeah. And I think both the bird and deer techniques you described would work probably equally as well on the other berries we're talking about here, um, strawberries, raspberries, that sort of thing. Yeah, I was also going to say um, it doesn't work for the birds, but for deer, going more vertical helps. So the strawberries you mentioned and our, um, our sapphire and midnight cascade blueberries work for hanging baskets. So if you can get those elevated up off the ground, uh, they could get them out of the reach of the deer. You could... Also, I've seen people do um, find a plant that the deer like just as much as the blueberries and plant that farther out away from your porch. So, you know, if you have bushel and berry plants on your your deck, maybe plant another type of plant that deer really like farther away and that you maybe don't mind them munching on a little bit um, because they'll stop at that plant and they'll prefer to go to that instead of coming up to your your front porch yeah that's the the trap crop theory to get them (laughs) (laughs) be enticed hopefully with something else a little bit better and and more enticing for them all right well let's move on to strawberries since we're already Mm -hmm. jumping over there and so you have um some really looks like beautifully um I was going to say bountiful strawberries and yeah. want to ask about the strawberries that you all offer and are they ever bearing or June bearing? And let's maybe define those terms for our listeners. Sure. So there's two different types. There's the June bearing, like you mentioned. So they will put on berries once a year. They'll give one crop in June. Um, and those type of berries usually tend to be larger berries. So you'll have larger size berries, but one crop of them. Uh, Ever bearing strawberries will continue to throw out flowers and fruit throughout the entire season. Their berries tend to be a little bit smaller, but not by much. Um, So you'll have, you know, a sporadic harvest throughout the entire 
season. And the bushel and berry varieties are ever bearing. So you're going to have strawberries in your hanging baskets or deco containers uh, all season long. And we have three colors. So there's rosy bell, which is a really nice light pink flower color. There's scarlet bell, which is a really deep red flower color. And then there's snowy bell, which is the traditional uh, pure white flower color. And in our trials, what we've done, and I've find really attractive is we like to put one of each color into a basket and then you have this tricolor basket like a mixed container with flowers and fruit on it at the same time it makes a really nice ornamental uh, show for your patio Hmm. yeah I like the sound of the tricolor and then you get a little bit of the different flavors as well yeah so these ones are really sweet compared to what you'd get at the grocery store. Uh, I don't know where you are, but for me, sometimes it's hit or miss. <laughs> uh, but these ones are really sweet right off the plant. Hmm. And so you're getting just a little handful, maybe at a time enough for maybe to add to your cereal or yogurt that morning, but not that big, bountiful harvest that you can make a batch of jam with. Right. These are more picking and snacking uh, berries. So you'd pick them throughout the season to enjoy them. And I always think that the term everbearing, you know, a little bit of a overpromise, you know, makes you think that you can have a strawberries in December or something like oh, that. Yeah, no, more like, uh, you know, May through uh, September, mm-hmm. depending on where you're at. And so these are bred to be in containers kind of hang over the edge. So probably you want the hanger, t- uh, them to be hanging up. Um, rather than sitting on the ground. Correct. Um, You know, or like an elevated pot would work as well. These varieties actually throw less runners than some other varieties. So the fruit will hang over the pot, but you won't have a lot of excess foliage that's going to, you know, trail all the way down to the ground or maybe root into your garden beds like some other um, strawberries can do. They're notorious for, you know, rooting in from their runners. Yeah, I actually recommend them in my ground cover book as a ground cover because of their runners, because they are rampant. And and so if you've never grown strawberries before, they do throw out, um, you know, like a runner or root stolen every once in a while. And and the second it touches the soil, that forms a new plant, Mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, has its pros and cons. Um, yep. <laughs> of course, if you want to grow more strawberries, that's great. Um, but how about the hardiness of these? So you're growing in a container that's kind of elevated off the ground or in mm-hmm. the air. Um, so that exposes that to a lot of the wind and our winter elements. Um, so what what are the hardiness zones for these? So these are hardy to zone four. Uh, but we do recommend that for winterizing your container berries, whether it's the strawberries or anything else in the line, that you take down the hanging basket and that you move your pots at least closer to your house. Um, or if you have the opportunity to, you know, to overwinter them in a garage or somewhere that's slightly protected, because you do have that exposed root ball in the container. Um, And it does make them a little bit more susceptible to the cold. So that little bit of extra protection, even just pushing them up against the side of the house will help. Uh, But they're pretty rock hardy. Um, So they shouldn't have a problem for you. Uh, We've done patio tests and they've come back for us year after year. Uh, But, you know, especially if we're going to go through some extreme temperature uh, issues or, 
if you're going through an extreme temperature dip, uh, like we have in the past couple years, where we'll be, you know, in the 70s at one point and then immediately drop down to below freezing, I'd say that would be a time when you'd want to maybe give your pots a little bit of extra protection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great advice for the winterizing. And then for the amount of watering and rain, so we can have sometimes really wet winters and then they might be sitting in that moisture all winter long. And what would you recommend for that? Yeah, I would say it's better to, you know, move them closer to the house or into that garage situation because then you have more control of the watering because you really don't want them to be that saturated throughout the winter. They're dormant and they want to be in a mostly dry period. Um, you know, you water them probably every couple weeks, uh, but I would not leave them out exposed into the elements if they're sitting in water like that. The other option would be to, at the time of planting, if you know that you're in a climate where you get a lot of that, I would maybe drill some extra holes in the container or elevate the container up off the ground so it's not sitting the drainage holes flat on the porch. And that would help with drainage. Mm. And for in-season, how much watering do you recommend for the strawberries? And since we skipped that on the blueberries, maybe the blueberries as well. And so your containers, you want to check every day. They tend to dry down much faster than on in-ground planting. Um, and you just want to make sure that the soil is moist, uh, but not, you know, drenched. So if you just stick a finger into the top couple inches of soil and it's moist, you should be fine. Um, and then as it starts to dry out a little bit, you want to water them to just keep them uh, e evenly moist in the container. So in periods of really hot temperatures, you might be watering uh, every day. Uh, but then in the spring and the fall, you know, maybe every other two, once or twice a week. Hmm. And so for the blueberries, you mentioned adding an acidifier at least once a season or once a growing year. Um, mm -hmm. How about fertilizer for those berries or any of the other berries? So they do well with a balanced uh, fertilizer. So, you know, 202020 of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Um, they even sell acid uh, fertilizers. It's not necessary, uh, but if you're having trouble keeping the pH, the acidity level in your pot, you might want to consider getting an acid fertilizer for the blueberries. Uh, the cane berries, so the blackberry, raspberry, and also the strawberries don't need that uh, lower pH or that acidic soil. So they can just take the balanced fertilizer um, that I mentioned, and they don't need any addition of um, soil acidifier into their pots. Hmm. Any other thoughts on strawberries before we move on to the canes? Um, you know, I, I like the idea, too, of using them in your mixed containers. You know, the whole idea of having a spiller element in mixed containers, they would solve that, uh, fit that niche really well in a mixed container. So, you know, maybe you're planting some annual mixed baskets, uh, consider adding some strawberries to those too, see how you like it. Yeah, I love that. I love mixing in edibles with the ornamentals and, you know, as you said, with the blueberry plants, they are both beautifully ornamental and edible and strawberries can be gorgeous too. 
Yeah, definitely. Especially with the three different flower colors. So you can really kind of switch it up to your own liking and your own color palette of what you want to do. And who doesn't want to entertain somebody on your patio or balcony and just reach over and, and eat a strawberry and they're like, what? You just picked that right there. <laughs> so right from your little container garden. So I love that. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about the raspberries and blackberries in your collection. So these are more canes than shrubs really, but you know, they can be trained. So how are you making those compact? So these are actually bred to be compact. So they truly are not going to need to be trained. They're not going to need to be tied up to a trellis. They can just live in your deco containers as a shrub. Um, so this is really nice breeding out of our breeder partners, um, domestically and internationally, they've been working on this. So not only have they improved that habit to make it really consumer friendly, they've also made it thornless. So it's also child and pet friendly too, which I think is another nice added benefit of having that thornless plant. So it really is a vast improvement over what's been on the market for, I don't know how many years now that we've had those large cane plants that we've had to deal with. Uh, but yeah, raspberry shortcake, raspberry and baby cakes, blackberry are a great improvement for homeowners, regardless of uh, space. I would even use them if you're going to do in-ground. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love the fact that uh, they're thornless, number one. <laughs> That's yes. a great improvement. Um, helps, especially gardening around pets and children and, you know, not wanting to get nicked yourself. But not having to wrestle with those canes um, every year and figure out which are the ones that I need to select out is, is a great benefit. Uh, but what pruning do they need? So they will need similar to the blueberries. So you're going to want to thin them out every year. I would say, you know, leave three to four main canes because they do fruit on the old wood. So you're going to want three to four canes from last year that are dormant to be left alone. And then you can trim out, you know, any smaller canes or any damaged or dead canes and leave those four main ones to be your fruit bearing ones for the upcoming season. And the rest could be, you know, trimmed out to the soil level. Hmm. And about how many berries do you get from a, you know, if you just were buying one plant for the season? So that first season that you plant it into its new container, it's going to be slightly uh, lighter because it's getting used to its new home. So it's growing and rooting out and it's focusing on some root development. But I would say you're still going to get a decent harvest. i um, seen fill up, uh, you know, the little pint containers that like blueberries and raspberries come in. You'd get probably, you know, about two or three of those from a season. And then as the plant gets more mature, so that second season after you've bought it, your fruit yield is going to increase because it's no longer focused on rooting into that new container. It's going to have more energy to produce more fruit. Hmm. And so when you bring home one of the bushel and berry collection and you're planting in a, in a container, are you transplanting it immediately and maybe a size up? Or what are you recommending um, for when you're first bringing it home? That is what I would recommend. Um, so most containers you're going to find in the store are going to be one gallon and two gallon sizes. So I, I would recommend upshifting to a container that's, you know, 
at least maybe 10 to 12 inches across and at least, you know, one size up from the container size you've bought. So I would look at the size container you're buying and then, you know, if it's a one gallon, maybe go to like a three gallon or two gallon size. And if it's a three gallon, maybe going to uh, like a five gallon decorative container size so that it has some room to grow into its new uh, pot. And then that also will decrease the amount of labor you have to put into in watering. Because if you leave it in its original pot, it's probably already pretty root bound because the grower wanted to get you a nice full plant. So you want to get it into some new soil, give it space to grow, and then you won't have to be hurrying to water it every day if it's still root bound in its original container. Hmm. And so for the raspberry and the blackberry, um, let's talk about their flavors for a little bit. Sure. So blackberry, you know, they naturally have a more um, slightly acidic palate to it. Uh, but baby cakes is sweet right off the plant. So you're going to have some acid tones and some sweetness mixed in. Um, I would say it's more like a classic sweet tasting blackberry. I would say it's pretty comparable to what you're going to get in the store. Um, and then in the raspberry, I actually find that raspberry shortcake tends to be sweeter than most of the store berries. Um, again, for me, when I go to the store, it's hit or miss uh, where I am. Uh, but it's got a sweet flavor and it has kind of like vanilla tones in it, which I think is where you're getting that more um, more depth of flavor than a, a grocery store raspberry. Well, you are making me hungry, Kristen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I am ready for some cobbler right now. Uh, so what is on the horizon? What are you guys looking at in your breeding programs and, and other people's research now? So I can tell you, which I'm pretty excited about, is that we are looking outside of just berries for bushel and berry. So many things come in a bushel, not just berries. Um, and in the upcoming years, I would say keep an eye out for plants that will also do well in the heat. So blueberries, raspberries, and blackberries, I think a lot of our northern growers have been able to enjoy, but we're disappointing some of our southern customers who don't get the chill hours. So you're going to start to see some things from us like brew your own tea at home from Tea Camellia. You're going to see some more tropical fruits like passion fruit. Um, and then to continue to expand our um, northern line, we're looking at some uh, honeyberry. So if you're familiar with Linicera carulia, it's a uh, similar profile tastes to blueberry, great antioxidants. And it has that slightly elongated, almost grape shaped uh, berry. And then it's rock hardy. I mean, those plants can go into like zone three. So that's pretty exciting in our breeding as well. Hmm, I can't wait for some of those. I do hear people always asking about camellia and whether mm -hmm. they can grow their own tea. So that's going to be exciting too. Yeah. You know, we always get asked that as well. And this one we're looking at has done well as a patio plant brought indoors where it's not hardy because, you know, they're only hardy to zone seven. Uh, but this one has done really well as an indoor plant, too, for people in colder zones. 
So I think it's going to be really successful for not only the Southern growers who could grow it as like an evergreen tea hedge, but also as people in the North who want to enjoy it too. Well, now I have to make room for a tea hedge (laughs) (laughs) and figure that out because I do love tea. Um, So uh, how can our listeners contact you and find out more? Um, So you could reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, It's Kristen Pullen on LinkedIn. Um, I think that would be the best way to send me a message and I'd be happy to answer any questions. Great. And the other part of your company, Star Roses and Plants, maybe we'll close out by talking about a little bit about those roses because guess what? Roses are edible too and ornamental. Um, (laughs) Is there any breeding being done for uh, like compact rows with big hips uh, that could be used for herbal uses or other things? Um, So we don't specifically target uh, edible uh, roses, but we do have roses that produce uh, larger hips and we have roses that are bred to be compact. So there's two separate products that have come out that's been um, really innovative is our petite knockout. It's all the great attributes that have gone into the knockout family of roses. So that great disease resistance and minimal maintenance, but it's on a compact shrub. So it's really nice and it's long blooming and it doesn't require the maintenance in trimming either that normal roses, the old fashioned roses need. Um, And then if you're looking for specifically for hips, I would look towards um, Rugosa roses. Uh, They produce pretty big hips um, and they also are great for things like erosion control um, and reclamation. Hmm. That's great advice, Kristen. And so for those wanting to learn more about Star Roses, we have a Star Roses website, which I'll link to in the show notes. And also bushelandberry.com is your website for the Bushel and Berry collection. And I'll have that link also in the show notes. Um, so any final thoughts, Kristen, about berry growing for the home gardener? Uh, I think the last thing I would say is, you know, there are berries that come available really early season as dormant uh, boxed product. Our bushel and berry line is offered that way as well. Um, so you might get access to those before the danger of frost has passed in your area. Uh, and I get this question a lot. So if you need to keep those stored, just put them in a cool, dark, dry place and check watering every week or two until your danger of frost has passed. And then you're clear to plant that dormant uh, bare root berry plant out into your garden, wherever you'd like. Excellent. Thank you so much, Kristen. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Phlox ground cover, plant profile. Phlox ground cover, Phlox stolonifera, also known as creeping phlox, star rock phlox, woodland phlox, and tufted creeping phlox. It's a ground cover that resembles a thick green carpet. 
When in bloom, it's sprinkled with purple, blue, pink, or white flowers. For best flowering, give it full to part sun and shear or pinch back the blooms after the first flowering for a secondary bloom later in the season. It can take some shade, though the flowering will be less prolific. Plant it between pavers and along pathways. It can take moderate foot traffic and bounce right back. It adapts well to various soil conditions. It looks great hugging a gentle slope for erosion control. Phlox ground cover does not tolerate siding in wet soils for long periods or having organic material like leaves or mulch sitting on top of it. It should be kept well watered for its first year, and then it's quite drought tolerant after that. It spreads by surface stems, stolons, that root at the growth nodes to form a solid ground cover. It's easy to propagate creeping phlox by cutting stem sections of four to six inches long from the parent plant during the late summer or early fall, treating the bottom end of the cutting with a rooting hormone to help it along, and planted in a well-drained, soilless growing medium. It is deer and rabbit resistant. The fragrant flowers attract many pollinators, and it's a butterfly favorite. This plant profile was excerpted from the book Ground Cover Revolution by Kathy Jentz. Phlox Dolinifera, you can grow that. What's new in the garden this week? Well, it's been a weather whiplash back and forth from 80 as a high in February to snow. Uh, so the garden has been going a little bit crazy. I've got magnolia saucer, magnolia that is already in bloom, and many of my daffodils that are early to mid-season are all blooming at the same time now. So I'm enjoying them, but again, it's a little crazy out there. And I wanted to take a second to thank everyone who has helped support my new book, Ground Cover Revolution, to all of you who have ordered it, to those who have posted reviews or requested that their local library carry it. I say a huge thank you. It's a, you know, trepidatious thing to put out a new book into the world. So I really thank all of you who have made it so much easier and have reacted so positively to the book. And I do have to note that our February 2023 issue is out and posted online and you can find that at washingtongardener.blogspot.com. The cover story is the award-winning garden photos from our garden photo contest and there's a beautiful yellow tulip on the cover. Inside we have a plant profile on northern spicebush, a story on seed potatoes versus potato seeds. Our native column covers dandelions, though they are not a native, and we talk about cherry laurel substitutes and two new tomatoes that you might be interested in. And you can meet Martha Pindale, a local horticulturist and instructor inside that issue. In the local gardening world, some upcoming events you might want to attend include the native plant open house sale at Chesapeake Native Nursery in Roserville State Park on Sunday, March 26th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. 
Um, that is a terrific sale with um, native plants locally grown from native seed and another local native plant event and this one is happening virtually uh, creating a wildlife habitat under and in our power line corridors you can register for that online at mdflora.org and that is hosted by the maryland native plant society Uh, the program is free and open to the public and the speaker is michael wilpers And you can find out more about that, of course, again, at mdflora.org. And the APLD, the local chapter of the Association of Professional Landscape Designers, is having a talk at Brookside Gardens, and that is on Friday, March 10th. That is their Winter Landscape Design Lecture, and it is on American Roots. So this features a panel discussion with some of the designers profiled in the new book, American Roots, by Nick and Allison McCullough. You can go to eventbrite.com and register for that. Happy gardening! In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen Terry Spate, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. Get low-maintenance alternative to lawns with the new book, Ground Cover Revolution, by Kathy Jentz. Reducing the lawn is among the biggest trends in homeownership, with an endless stream of homeowners looking for an eco-friendly alternative to a traditional, everyday grass lawn. In the last few years alone, over 23 million American adults converted part of the lawn to a natural landscape, and now are looking to do even more. The biggest challenge to adopting this new ideal of perfect lawn is knowing how and when to replace your turf and which plants are the best ones for the job. Ground Cover Revolution's here with all the answers you need. Included are 40 in-depth profiles of plants that are perfect choices for replacing a grass lawn. There are options for sun, for shade, for dry and wet sites, and for various climates around the globe. There are choices that bloom, options that are evergreen, and selections that are deer resistant. Author Kathy Jens has also included an incredibly useful chart that gives you all the details on each of the 40 choices for quick reference and to make your ground cover selection process even easier. Whether you want to replace the entire lawn or just reduce the amount of land dedicated to turf, Ground Cover Revolution will help you usher in a new and improved idea of what a beautiful lawn should be. Available at bookstores now and also at Quarto.com where you can get 30% off using discount code GARDENING30. This is The Last Word on Composting with me, Christy Wilhelmy of Garden Nerd. 
It is my opinion that composting is one of the most important things for gardeners and non-gardeners to do. If you look at the book Drawdown, which was the work of 80 scientists and was edited by Paul Hawken, the top 100 ways to reverse climate change are all in that book. Composting is number 60, but reducing food waste is number three. So diverting food waste from the trash can to the compost bin, if, you, if we all did that, that act alone does a world of good. Now composting isn't an inactive process. It doesn't just sit there. It's a chemical and a biological response to combining ingredients. You've got your carbon, you've got your nitrogen, but the other ingredients are water and soil. Those ingredients are really important. Let me elaborate a bit on that. So if your bin is not on soil, add a handful of existing soil each time you add biomass to your bin. There are a billion microbes in a teaspoon of soil, and that's going to inoculate your pile. Microbes facilitate decomposition, and so does turning the pile because aeration is key, and the more new surface area you expose, the more bacteria can go to work breaking things down, so it happens faster. If your pile is dry, microbes go dormant or dry, so water is really important in composting. You use more water than you think you do, but if you've got too much moisture in there, if your pile is soggy or stinks like garbage, you need to add more browns to aerate the pile and soak up the moisture. And if your pile is stagnant and is just sitting there doing nothing, turn it because again, you're exposing your surface area for bacteria to go to work on. And you can kick it up by adding a high nitrogen ingredient like grass clippings mixed with shredded paper or cardboard so that it doesn't form just this bacterially sludgy layer of glue. Uh, and you can add chopped up cover crop materials like fava beans, hairy vetch, peas, legume crops, anything like that. You'll find more information about composting and how to build your own cold and hot composting pile in my book, Gardening for Geeks. You'll also find a recipe for aerated compost tea, if you want to get really nerdy, in my book, Grow Your Own Mini Fruit Garden. Both books focus on growing food crops in small spaces, aka biointensive gardening. And come learn more about all of that at GardenNerd.com. This has been the last word on composting with Christy Wilhelmy. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.